this morning? That, I heard that Swahili song now three times, and I could listen. It gets better every time, I think. I owe a great debt to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. When I was a child, my parents brought us every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening, and we sat right over there in the front seat. My parents, I think, had the idea that children listen better or pay better attention if they're up front. At least that's the way it seemed to work out. All through my years of schooling at the little two-room village school here in Houghton, and Houghton Academy, Houghton College. This was my church home. When I left for Vietnam to marry John, this church sent me out. And when we came back, after being released from prison, this church welcomed us back. They threw a parade. After that, we served in the Philippines, Malaysia, Laos, Thailand, and the people of Houghton prayed for us and supported us financially. There's no way I can adequately express my thanks and my appreciation to this church. Our service, as Paul said, has taken us has been with Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Summer Institute of Linguistics, two organizations that have worked closely together over the past 75 years. Wycliffe Global Alliance, of which Wycliffe U.S. is a member, is a network of organizations from in many countries that recruit people and help them to raise support, prayer support and finances for doing Bible translation. SIL is an organization of more than 5,500 people coming from over 60 countries that trains and administers these people as they serve in other countries in language development, in multilingual education, and Bible translation. SIL has conducted linguistic analysis in more than 2,500 languages spoken by 1.7 billion people in nearly 100 countries. I just got that off the website. Our own roles in the organization have been varied, and they've taken us to many parts of the world. We've been involved in language learning and hands-on translation, in teacher training, in preparation of educational materials, doing language survey, doing university teaching, writing technical linguistic articles, developing dictionaries, and serving as administrators and also, as Paul said, traveling internationally as part of the International Board of Directors. All of this has been with the aim of serving language communities that are without the word of God in their own mother tongue. During the more than 55 years we've been working, we've seen immense changes in the areas where we work as well as in our own country in respect to cross-cultural Christian ministry. I'd like to reflect on just a few of these. 
There have been changes in transportation, travel, communication. These have made the world a much smaller place. When John left for Vietnam in 1959 by freighter, the trip took more than a month. I joined him two years later, but it took me several days by plane, going first to the West Coast, and then Honolulu, and then Guam, and then finally Saigon. The only voice communication we had with each other over those two years was one phone call when John booked a call at the main Saigon post office, making sure that I would be at home and by the phone in Houghton. And on that day, we celebrated our engagement. It took over two weeks to get a letter. And it wasn't even considered a possibility that John would come back for the wedding or that I would or that our families would go there. The cost was just prohibitive. And so I went with my wedding dress and my suitcase, actually my grandmother's wedding dress, and we were married a month after I arrived. Over the years, we've seen this change. When we moved out of our Bangkok apartment last year, our neighbors showed me a scrap of paper that we had given them in 2008, I think it was, to indicate where we would be over the next three months. We had planned travel to Indonesia, Dallas, Texas, Nairobi, Manila, and Mumbai, as well as travel to places within Thailand. Similarly, when our grandson was married in California last summer, his parents and sister, the Dodies, booked a ticket to come back for the wedding. Pretty reasonable. Um, flights are not just as big an event now as they used to be. So they were able to come back for the wedding. Email, Skype, instant messaging, host of other options make communication possible almost anywhere in the world. I regularly get text messages from somebody in southern Laos, a, a Katang friend who will ask me to pray for somebody who's very ill or somebody who may be um, troubled with demon possession that he's been asked to pray for. Last Sunday morning, as we were getting ready for church, I got a smartphone message from Sabah, Malaysia. A friend, a Karazan friend, was letting us know that now a voice recording of the Karazan New Testament is online. She was so excited. That's, we were excited too. That's a translation that we worked on. The Brew New Testament also is available in voice recording and in print online. And soon the whole Bible in Brew will be on smartphones all over Vietnam and Laos. Changes in the technology have been impressive, too. In 1962, when we moved into a brew village in the mountains near the 17th parallel separating South Vietnam from the communist north, few foreigners lived in that area. Very few brew people knew Vietnamese, let alone English. I don't think anybody spoke English. There was no school in the village where we lived. Our house was 
bamboo and thatch up off the ground. Our neighbors were all subsistence rice farmers. Our wind-up tape recorder, reel-to-reel tape recorder, was a huge attraction because it could play brew music and brew stories that we had recorded. So people showed up every night wanting to hear these, this brew music. Our portable typewriter had been adapted to be able to type Vietnamese, but for the brew language, there was no written form. When we eventually purchased a, a gas refrigerator, uh, we were able to keep food a little longer and enjoy iced drinks. I remember one time after a noon meal in which we'd had cold water, we threw the ice cubes out on the ground outside of our house and went back to work. Shortly, we heard a neighbor calling out to our language helper, Carlu, Carlu, come quick. We rushed to the window, wondering what emergency there was, and saw him holding one of the discarded ice cubes between two sticks. It bites, he says, it bites. <laughs> this new technology was a source of amazement to our brew friends and neighbors. They could never understand how a putting a fire under that metal box made things in it get cold. I confess, I don't know how it does either, but we enjoy the cold. The, um, when we then later moved to Malaysia, to Sabah, we lived still, we lived there in a small wooden house up on stilts, uh, beside a river at the end of a long suspension bridge. The water buffalo would rest under our house because it was, it was shade there, it was cool. But in the house, we actually had electricity and running water. Uh, most of our neighbors were rice farmers, but our next-door neighbor worked as a plumber in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in the nearby city. We, at that point, had computers and photocopiers and cassette recorders to use in our work. Big advance. But this past year, when we left Thailand to come back to the U.S., we were working in a row of four-story cement buildings with high-speed internet where people from neighboring countries could come and work on their development of their own languages. Computer technology had produced tools for editing and sharing materials, for checking translation, for preparing textbooks and adapting materials from one language to another, thus extending the work done in one language to another closely related one. With all these changes in travel and communication and technology, language communities in many parts of the world have become much less isolated. The search for better jobs has produced increased urbanization, bilingualism, 
language shift. Some linguists have predicted that as many as a third of the world's languages are in danger of extinction. I question that number, having lived with a few of these communities, but certainly the world has changed for language communities. You might ask, is it necessary then to translate the Bible into these languages, to the mother tongues of these groups? Why can't they just learn the national language or English? But when you've lived there among some of these marginal groups, you realize that only a very small number actually speak the national language, or let alone languages of wider communication. And even for those who do, nothing speaks to them, to their heart, like their own language. I recall sitting in a Karazan translation committee uh, session in Sabah, Malaysia. Several of the committee members were school teachers and knew both Malay and, to some extent, English. The man reading, reading aloud, was a school principal, a catechist in the church, and a translator for Radio Malaysia into Karazan. We were checking the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And as Uncle Peter was reading Jesus' teaching on the treatment of enemies, I heard one of the teachers sitting beside me say to the other, it's not easy to be a Christian, you know. Then as he read further and got to the passage on divorce, he stopped. And he looked over at the translator and said, is that what it says? She said, I think so. Then he looked at me, who was sitting across the table and following along in the Greek text, and said, is that what it says? And I said, I think so. Is there a problem? He went back and read it again. And then he said to the only single man on the committee, you better be careful who you marry. (laughs) You see, I'm sure he had read this before in English and probably in Bahasa Malaysia. But somehow, when he read it in his own language, it was personal. It was real. Though the changes in, in travel, communication, technology have, I think, made the work much easier, there have been other changes that have made the, the work more difficult, especially for those wanting to do Christian ministry. Tourists are generally welcome anywhere in the world, as long as they have money and they're willing to spend it there. But for people who want to go and live, it's sometimes a different story. Increasingly, I think, nationalism and anti-Christian pressure has made it difficult to get visas to work in some of these places. You may be required to perform a a service that the government sees as valuable in order to buy you access to the country, in order to get into the country, and that takes a lot of time. You're generally expected also to train somebody to take your place. You can come for a year or two, but then you train somebody else and you go back home. This isn't easy to do when you're working with a 
minority group who has very little education. Within the American church, too, I think there have been changes that have made, made it difficult for people wanting to serve in mission. At a recent, on a recent visit to the Wycliffe headquarters in Orlando, Florida, we were told that few churches will allow returning missionaries or those wanting to go with a mission organization to speak to the whole church, as I'm doing here in Houghton. This is an unusual church. Generally, five or ten minutes, a couple times a year, may be given, but not very much. And yet, at the same time, the rising cost of living in many places puts the, the task of getting adequate support uh, much at a much higher level, especially for a growing family. Short-term missions has, in many cases, become the norm. Caught up in the excitement of sending their own young people out for a missions trip, many churches are uninterested in supporting those that are willing to or wanting to go into missions on a longer term. But you can't learn a language, and you can't engage in language development or translation on a two-week mission trip. just can't be done. I have learned that a fairly large percentage, though, of people who are applying to Wycliffe as career, career missionaries now have had previous missions trip experience. So it could be that these young people are at least getting a taste of what, what it's like and about their own uh, willingness to be a part of the, that movement. Although there have been a lot of things that have changed, some things haven't changed. The need hasn't changed. According to the latest statistics from Wycliffe, there are still 1,421 minority language groups that are still without any scriptures. Many, if not all of these, are minorities, and they're, they're groups that are marginalized uh, because of their language or because of their race. Because of this, they're unable to take advantage of the educational opportunities and the uh, economic opportunities in the countries where they live. These groups are generally at the bottom of the ladder, sociolinguistically or socioculturally, as well as in terms of a sense of their own dignity and worth. They're constantly told that they are not as good as others and their languages are useless. These, I think, are truly the least of these with whom Jesus asked his disciples to share their resources. The command hasn't changed. The words of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 are still as valid today as they were when the Lord Jesus spoke them. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and the word in Greek is ethne, or ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But how can people obey if they don't know or understand what Jesus has commanded? The opposition hasn't changed. 
Though we may feel it more keenly, I think, in our own society now, opposition has always been there to people who want to serve the Lord. It always will be. Jesus said in John 15, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He also told the disciples, I've told you this, these things so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Materialism, nationalism, religious pluralism, militant anti-Christian opposition, these are still there, and they're still, still devices that Satan uses to stop the spread of the word. Still, I think that the response to the call hasn't changed. As I traveled around the world to many of the countries where SIL is working, I was continually impressed by the caliber of people that God is calling and sending out around the world to do his work. It's quite amazing. Some of them come from Houghton College. These are people who are aware of changes, but willing to be flexible. They've committed themselves to the hard work of learning another language and adapting to another culture, and these have not changed. But they work in teams that are increasingly cross-cultural. So they have to learn to adapt not only to the culture where they're going, but also to the culture of all the people that are on their team. In the center where we worked in Thailand, it wasn't a large team, but we had people from Wycliffe US, Wycliffe Netherlands, Wycliffe Canada, Wycliffe Thailand, Wycliffe Singapore, as well as from the various language groups that we were serving. This involves quite a bit of cultural adaptation. The people that God has called are those who have committed to building relationships and serving governments, local institutions, majority and minority language groups. They're people who are willing to be accountable both to the field administration and to the supporting constituency at home. And sometimes that's not an easy balance. They operate with transparency and honesty knowing that in this small world, what they say in their newsletters or on social media may be read by the people they work with as well as by people who are opposed to their work. They're willing to take up jobs that they wouldn't prefer to take in order to accomplish their ministry. They're willing to work with people from other organizations, other sending countries. They're people who are persistent and willing to hang in there when it seems like doors are closing all around them. And it does seem in this world that constantly this happens. You think you will do this and something happens and you have to do that. And uh, people who are in ministry have to somehow be willing to flex. But finally, and most importantly, the power of God's word to change lives has not changed. We read from Isaiah where God says in his word that I will accomplish 
what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. He's still doing that. When we prepared to go to the brew people, I sometimes wondered, how could we ever convince people who never heard of the Bible and knew nothing at all about the Christian faith that somehow the Bible was important to them and there was, in fact, the word of God? But we learned, as Paul did when he visited Thessalonica, that this was not something we needed to worry about, and it wasn't even part of our job. God's Spirit took the word translated into the brew language and produced life and faith in those who heard it. We saw this happen in the brew church that continues to grow numerically and spiritually despite hardship and difficulties that they face on a daily basis. God's word is still living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Several years ago, we had opportunity to go back after 43 years to visit the village in Vietnam where we had first started our work. It was only a short time. It was a two-day visit. had to be approved by the Vietnamese security police. And we were carefully watched the whole time we were there. The New Testament had been available in Brew for 30 years at that point, And the Brew Bible was in the final stages of, of preparation. We stayed in a hotel in the district center. There weren't any hotels there when we lived there, but there's a fairly large hotel now in the district center. The next day, we went to the village and uh, walked up the hill into the village where they had a preschool for small children, then to the church where people had gathered to meet us. It was packed. I don't know how many people were there, but it was certainly an emotional meeting. Later, they took us back to the district center to a Vietnamese church where a Vietnamese pastor had invited uh, church leaders from about 23 brew villages to come and meet with us. It was amazing to hear how God had worked. These were all small house churches, but how God had worked in all of these and other villages beyond that uh, to bring people to himself. Smartphones were very much in evidence, and everybody wanted their picture taken with us. A few months before we returned to the U.S. this past spring, I was standing near the coffee pot at the Language Center in Northeast Thailand. There are a number of brew people who serve on the staff there now. And I was standing, I listened as two of our brew co-workers were talking to each other, and they were discussing what it had meant that we had come to the brew they, the one was, they were, they were both, one was a son and the other a grandson of people we had worked very closely with uh, before we had to leave Vietnam at the time of the communist takeover. One was, one was, had come, the pastor had come over to help John with the work, with working on a brew dictionary. The other was a university graduate and he was involved in translation into a language closely related to his own. They were talking about what it meant 
not just to the believers, but to their whole people group, that they now had a language that they were recognized as having a written language. They said it had made a big difference, not just to the believers, but to all of the Brew people to, in terms of their, their own sense of worth. And then they said having God's word in their language has meant that there are so many believers, so many believers now in, in Brew villages that the government has pretty much given up trying to eradicate it and has had to, has had to acknowledge that the Christian faith is in fact a part of the Brew cultural tradition. I stood in the background and marveled that God had given us the privilege of seeing how he has caused his word to be fruitful in the lives of the Brew Church. During the time we were in prison in Vietnam, interrogators were always trying to figure out who had sent us and what our motivation was. And uh, I remember one session where I was actually shared with the interrogator that I believed in God and I believed that the Bible was God's word. And because I believed that, I felt I had a responsibility to share it with others. He said, well, yeah, you believe, because you don't know if there's a God or not, but you believe. And I agreed that this was, in fact, true. And then he said, because you believe, you've come and you've taught the brew people about God. And some of them have believed. They don't know if he exists, but they believed. And I agreed. They'll remember you, he went on. Every time they see their language in writing, they'll remember you. And every time they read the brew scripture, they'll remember you. At first I thought, is he trying to encourage me? But then I realized that he was pointing out my crime. When he continued, not only will these people remember you, they will tell their children about you, and their children will tell their children, and it'll be many years before the effects of what you have done will be able to be undone. I was actually kind of shaken. I went back to the room, and I told John what he had said. And John's response was, well, praise the Lord. He's right, you know. That's a pretty, pretty good testimony to the effectiveness of our work. But at that time, we little expected that God would give us the privilege of meeting and actually working with some of our spiritual grandchildren. Some time ago, a brew friend wrote to us and to you, who have been our supporters, saying, now the people who are in the group of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every one of them knows this. If you drink water, you remember the person who dug the well. If you eat fruit, you remember the person who planted the tree. In this same way, we never forget the labor that you, our brothers and sisters, expended pouring out your lives for the souls of the brew. But I don't know what we can do to repay this very great labor. We can only bow before the Lord in thanks and pray great blessings from the Lord to be poured out on you, our brothers and sisters. This 
is the thanks that goes to you because you are part of the team. And I can't think of any more fulfilling way to invest one's life than in giving a group of people God's word in their own language.